And it's, it's very easy to mistake uh, abundance of detail for uh, the historian's job being easier. Mm. And that's not always the case and not necessarily the case. Uh, we have a lot that we're told about Jesus and there are reasons to have serious doubts about significant parts of it, right? Uh, there are lots of places where we read things in the gospel and we say, wow, there's a lot of detail about what Jesus said on the cross and what those around him said, what uh, he and Pilate talked about or things like that. And the historian will say, yeah, we have a lot of detail and we don't have any real reason to think that the authors or their sources were well poised to have known what happened. When you were a bird I'd let you fly Far, far away Up ever so high When you were a river I'd let you run Down to the way Ting way Well, my friends, and welcome back to the What If Project podcast. My name is Glenn. I'm your host, and this is episode number 162, and it's my conversation with my friend James McGrath. We're going to be talking about his book, What Jesus Learned from Women. And this is a really good book. Like, you've got to go pick it up. Go to Amazon. I'll look it up. Buy it. You won't be sorry. This is not your typical book about women in the Bible, where it's like, here's the list of women. And we're going to talk about all of their stories. But instead, what James does is he looks at the women in Jesus' life. And he talks about what Jesus might have learned from those women, directly or indirectly, by watching and observing them that impacted his life and his ministry. Really good stuff. Uh, super creative. I've never seen anybody tell stories about characters in the Bible that on the surface, like a first surface read, seem insignificant. But James says maybe not. Maybe they had a really, really big role to play in the development of Jesus and his life. So really good stuff. Check it out. I'm excited to share this uh, conversation with you. In the show notes today, you'll find a link uh, to his book and also links to Patreon. Buy me a coffee if you'd like to support the show. Uh, the Heretic Shop, if you'd like to buy a t-shirt or a hoodie uh, or something like that. Uh, all the money from the Heretic Shop gets donated to various people uh, and or organizations. So check that out. There's some new stuff there. Uh, some new stuff coming down the pipeline for the fall because fall is coming. Can you believe it? I mean, it's July, but August, and then that's going to roll by pretty fast. Then you're in September. So I'm already thinking about what kind of fall merch can we get up on the show it's super duper heretical. So uh, be on the lookout for, for some stuff coming uh, down the pipeline. I usually record this, by the way, I don't know why I'm going to share this with you, but I am. I usually record this on uh, like Friday, sometimes Saturday, but it's Thursday morning. And I'm recording because I'm going to the dentist at 8.30 to get a tooth taken out. I had an issue with a root canal I had done like six years ago. And it's got an infection like way up in the top and uh, like close to the bone. And they said that, you know, we can't do another root canal because it's not going to do anything. So we, we got to take the tooth out. And it's way in the back. And I hate the dentist. I'm super scared. I'm, I'm already shaking. I'm not, it's, I got to be there at 8.30. It's 6.30 right now. I got two hours. I'm already shaking. I'm already nervous. And yeah. So I thought to myself, I better record this today because I don't know if I'm going to be, if I'm gonna be able to talk tomorrow. Or Friday, or, or Saturday, or Sunday, <laughs> or Monday morning. So I, I better get this done. So uh, I'm recording it now. Going to the dentist. Um, thoughts and prayers. Even though you're going to be listening to this afterwards, uh, thoughts and prayers for my mental and emotional <laughs> recovery. A special music today is from my friend at the Denver Christ Band. Uh, I work with one of their band members at the Apple Store. Uh, he's super encouraging. I love their heart, their creativity, so check them out on Apple Music, Spotify, uh, Denver Kreitz 
band. And all that to say, my friends, uh, this is episode number 162, and it's my conversation with James McGrath. Roll the tape. Mama, the time's come, I know. Your boy is almost grown. So I'm moving up and out this home. I said, Mama, my future's calling me. Looks like a finally. It's a man of best my kick-ass dreams. I'll have a tattoo of gold and talk to ladies, and I want them more than a match. And all I'll do for several days, sitting on my ass, count my cash with a mama. Oh, oh, mama, yeah. Hey, everybody, welcome back to the podcast. Today we're sitting down with my friend James McGrath, who wrote a wonderful book that you should add. Uh, to your collection. The book is called What Jesus Learned from Women, uh, and it's a game changer. Lots of good ideas, lots of new perspectives. So James, uh, welcome to the podcast. It's an honor to talk with you. Yeah, it's an honor to be here. Great to have a chance to have this conversation. Thank you. So before we get too far uh, into your book, maybe take a few minutes to give us like a high level overview of uh, James McGrath. Who are you? What do you do? Uh, what makes you tick? High level overview of that. That's Bird's uh, eye view. <laughs> what makes me tick? Uh, so I'm a new, first and foremost, a New Testament scholar, a religion professor at Butler University in Indianapolis, Indiana. I got into New Testament study largely as a way of exploring why faith was sort of the, the course that led me there. And those who study the Bible academically discover sooner or later that doing that actually challenges some of your presuppositions and assumptions. No, no. Doesn't matter no. what the assumptions are, <laughs> right. it'll challenge some of them, right? right. <laughs> uh, I, I have yet to be an exception to that. Uh, but. Teaching at Butler University has been really fantastic. It's uh, a fairly small religion program. And one advantage of that is that you know, there's been opportunity, invitation to explore side interests. There's been a lot of freedom to research whatever grabs my interest. And so I've been writing about subjects like the intersection of religion and science fiction and things like that, as well as working on the historical Jesus. So what would you say is your like... What's your wheelhouse? Like, what's your specialty? What's the thing that you find yourself focusing the most of your attention on when it comes to your research and things? Uh, well, that that changes from time to time. <laughs> uh, certainly, the thing that I started out in is one that I keep coming back to and mm -hmm. just submitted yet another uh, a piece of writing somewhere related to that topic, uh, which is Christology, right? So mm -hmm. how Jesus is depicted in the New Testament, and in particular, how that relates to uh, the Jewish monotheism of that time, mm. right? There's some exalted language that is articulated about Jesus in the New Testament, as well as later. And the question has been asked, are Christians monotheists, right? And mm. those kinds of things. And so uh, looking at that in relation to the New Testament, trying to put those texts in their context, that sort of thing, uh, that's where I started. And that's where I've continued to come back to. Yeah. On the other hand, I guess, there is a sense in which that does naturally connect with most of the other things I've done in relation to Jesus, right? It, it leads in one direction to the question of the historical Jesus, mm -hmm. the human Jesus, questions about people who influenced him. Mm -hmm. And so I uh, was talking with someone from the Times of Israel about the book. Um, no, actually, that wasn't, that wasn't the conversation. It was a different conversation, but I was talking <laughs> with somebody about the book recently and they said, so what's next? What Jesus learned from men? And I was like, funny you should ask, because I am going to be doing some work on John the Baptist. Hmm. And of course, there is a real sense in which he seems to be Jesus' mentor or teacher or something like that. Yeah. And that connects with one of the other areas that I've gone off on a somewhat uh, lateral tangent to from my main wheelhouse, my main area of, of focus. And that is a group called the Mandaeans, mm -hmm. who are essentially the last surviving Gnostic group to make it down to the present day from ancient times. Hmm. And they have a very high view of John the Baptist, but are not such big fans of Jesus. And so there's something fascinating there. And want to bring their texts and, and their rituals into the picture and looking for the historical John the Baptist. Well, that sounds like uh, we're going to have to do another podcast episode on that because that sounds very interesting. But to your point, it's it's funny when like you start 
you say you start digging into this stuff, you start doing research on the Bible, you start doing, looking into different scholars and different writings such as your own. And the rabbit hole is very, is very deep as you begin to realize, I know for myself, just what a narrow view of Christianity, what a narrow view of church history, what a narrow view of the Bible and theology that I was given. I never realized how wide the scope has been throughout church history and especially early Christianity. Yeah. Yeah. That's definitely been something that I've, I found to be the case. Uh, it challenged my assumptions as I found it to be the case, but <laughs> certainly time and time again, that's confirmed that the sources that we have indicate mm -hmm. a range of diversity, a breadth of, uh, you know, and, and diverse opinions to an extent that we often either deny or are just not aware of. Yeah. But that's just what we have, right? Mm -hmm. And what don't we have that might give us an even broader picture? You know, it's right. Yeah. So let's talk about your book. I'll start with the the title, uh, What Jesus Learned from from Women. In I think it's in the introduction, but you talk about how the the title is very specific. Like you chose it very specifically, what Jesus learned from women as opposed to what women taught Jesus. So maybe talk to us a little bit about that. Like what's the purpose of this title? And uh, at the heart of the book, what's the book about? Yeah, so I, I thought about lots of titles. This one really was one that came to mind early and was never able to get away from it, even though I tried, <laughs> tried to think of different alternatives, say, is, is this catchy enough? Mm -hmm. everyone who heard it seemed to like it. And so I was like, okay, I'm not going to, it's got to say something if everybody likes it. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's like, don't, don't, don't take her with it. If that's the case, Right. but you always wonder, okay, should there be a subtitle? Should it be something else? And then this is the subtitle, things like that. And, you know, while it's not technically, it's not the passive voice still, it's one of those things that I expected an editor to say, you know, why not just say what women taught Jesus is that what <laughs> Jesus learned from women, but there were examples of women from whom Jesus learned, mm -hmm. uh, according to the conclusions I draw in the book, that probably never knew that he learned something from them, right? Mm -hmm. He's viewing them at a distance or the full ramifications of their impact on him are not seen in that one encounter. And so it seemed like this was the title to go with in order to do justice to that, right? The, the, the one in particular that would have been hard to include is uh, the woman who puts the uh, two coins in the temple treasury, mm. where one gets the impression that might have made an impact on Jesus. Did she ever know? Not as far as we're told, right? Mm. Uh, there, there may have been a sequel story that got left out of the gospels in which Jesus chases her down and says, hey, hey, I want to just tell you that you, know, you just had this real impact on me. Right. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, that, that would be speculative to say the least. Right. So it's this idea that we can we can learn something from someone without them intentionally teaching it to us. So whether it be by observation, whether it be by interaction, I could have an interaction with you on the street and you don't intend to teach me something, but I can learn something from you anyway. Yes. And we, we do tend to use education and learning in in fairly narrow ways, at least some of the time. Yeah. Right? And so. Uh, if you think about ancient men learning and their education, very often we'd say, you know, the majority of, of men and women, but in particular women were not given opportunities for education and things like that. Mm -hmm. But that's referring to formal education, right? Mm -hmm. Most of them were apprentices in a trade, learning from their, uh, their father in many instances. Mm -hmm. All of them were influenced by their mother and by other uh, female relatives if they had such individuals living. Mm -hmm. And so I think part of it as well was to try to do justice to the fact that learning is something broader than, than the formal, you know, this person is teaching me something, you know, in a very yeah. explicit, deliberate kind of way. Now, every chapter in the book, you kind of look at a different, uh, different woman uh, that Jesus would have an, had an interaction with. And you did, a, you did a masterful job of kind of putting the, the story together of Jesus and the particular woman and what he may have uh, learned from her. But the question that kept coming up in my mind as I was reading, I was trying to fight this question off, and I know people might even be asking this, is how can we construct what Jesus learned from these women when in reality, the New Testament doesn't always tell us 
all that much about the women that it mentions, right? Like Jesus obviously was raised or he lived in a very patriarchal world. We know that women weren't exactly treated with the same uh, appreciation or respect as men. And although we see their names scattered throughout the New Testament, which is great, they undoubtedly played amazingly key roles. Uh, we don't always know very much about them, much less what Jesus explicitly learned from them. So maybe help us understand a little bit about how you went about putting together a, a book uh, of what Jesus learned from the women that the Bible oftentimes speaks rather vaguely about. Yeah. So th- there, there, there are a lot of interesting aspects to that. Yeah. Uh, one of them is that, as you said, there are some things that we can assume if we're not in, in some way, shape or form denying that Jesus was a human being. Mm-hmm. Right? So yep. if he learned, then he learned from his mother, um, again, assuming she lived into you know, his years in which he, you know, his formative years, mm-hmm. uh, all human beings do that. To deny that is to deny his humanity. And I think that's, that's one point to me. Definitely the book does take what we're told and try to fill in both with things that we know generally about women and about the society and those kinds of things, as we do with all historical figures, male or female. And then around that to uh, to speculate, always aiming for what is plausible and when possi- when it's when there's enough evidence, what's probable, mm-hmm. but determined to say something because it would be so easy to let the uh, relative silence or the paucity of information in our sources to silence these women, you know, as they were silenced, you know, or uh, neglected or marginalized in the past. Mm-hmm. And there's been a long history of saying. Well, you know, the, the sources don't tell us that story, so we can't tell it, so sorry. And then the same marginalized perspectives remain marginalized and yeah. contributing to that. That said, I think there's another point that your question gets at that I think is an important one. And it's, it's very easy to mistake uh, abundance of detail for uh, the historian's job being easier. Mm. And that's not always the case and not necessarily the case. Uh, we have a lot that we're told about Jesus, and there are reasons to have serious doubts about significant parts of it, right? Uh, there are lots of places where we read things in the gospel and we say, wow, there's a lot of detail about what Jesus said on the cross and what those around him said, what uh, he and Pilate talked about or things like that. And the historian will say, yeah, we have a lot of detail and we don't have any real reason to think that the authors or their sources were well poised to have known what happened, right? Right. And so they were very likely doing what ancient historians did. Right? We, mm-hmm. It's not just the gospels. This is not unique to religious texts or ancient literature. Mm-hmm. Uh, but certainly in Greco-Roman history writing, there was a principle that you, know, you, you fill in, you provide speeches for the characters, right? They've got to say something. Right. There's, there's, there are no recordings. So what do you make them say? You make them say things that suit the kinds of people they were and the context in which they're speaking. Hmm. And so you can have long speeches and lots of detail. And that in some ways makes things harder for the historian because hmm. it can deceive you into thinking, okay, this is what it was like rather than, this is what this person thought this other person would have likely said in that context. <laughs> right, right. And so in some ways, the we're, we're not any necessarily any worse off than we are in the case <laughs> any any other historical figure. That's yeah, obviously so, not very reassuring for some people though. <laughs> right. So, I mean, it's funny because you think like if there's, if there's a little information, you know, in my mind, I think, well, that's not as preferable like i'd rather have more information because if i have a little information you got to speculate about a lot but to your point if you have a lot of information now it's like okay well how much of this is actually true or how much of this is actually historical uh when a lot of this stuff was recorded so long after jesus lived anyway so how much of it isn't elaborated on or kind of molded to fit a particular circumstance or something like that yeah, and one thing that I, I was really struck by, yeah, there were lots of things that I was struck by as I worked <laughs> on this book, things that surprised me, things mm-hmm. that I didn't anticipate going into it. But one was that this theme of Jesus learning from women, of women making an impact on Jesus, sort of kept 
showing itself in the material across different gospels and in sources that weren't focused on this, right? None of the gospels shows itself to be setting out to tell us here is, you know, here is an account of the influences on Jesus, right? It's, it's focused on Jesus and his authority and things like that. Yeah. And so the fact that this kept emerging kind of without the authors kind of deliberately focusing attention on it mm. actually could give one a certain amount of confidence that there is something to this, that there is some historical reality poking through precisely because it's not something that is there to meet an authorial aim that would then make us wonder, okay, did they just put this in there because they're trying to make this point, you know, that mm -hmm. kind of thing. And might they've invented it in order to help make that point. Right, uh, right. When something is tangential, when something is mentioned in passing, it's, it's sort of beside the point of an author. Mm -hmm. That that may actually give us a little bit more confidence than when, you know, the, the gospels are telling us, you know, Jesus said this and they want us to believe it, right? Yeah. And it's surprisingly difficult in those circumstances because we assume that there was, a, one imagines a fair amount of continuity. Jesus told his disciples things and they told others to think those things <laughs> according to Jesus' teaching. That's sort of, right, seems natural. Right. And yet because there's a sort of convergence of aims there, it does make one wonder, okay, so is this Jesus? Is it, the, is it the disciples continuing what Jesus said? Are they elaborating? Are they going beyond it? Are they re reworking it because now in light of the cross and other things, they've had to rethink things. Yeah. And so in some ways, th those situations can actually be a little bit harder to navigate. Yeah. So many questions because like, it's funny, like growing up, it was just for me, it was a very surface level reading. You know, it was the red letters. Jesus said it. And like, that's it. Don't worry about it. Don't ask any more questions. But now to your point, like, you know, thinking about all these other dimensions of the text and all these other dimensions of the story and the context it was written in and who shared it and why, like there's so many questions to think about. But I think a lot of people that raises alarm, like they get nervous, they get scared, like, oh my goodness, we're messing with the, with the Bible. But to me, I feel like it brings it to life, like so much more it gives it some humanity. Yeah. And giving humanity is definitely one of the aims of the book, right? Yeah. That, that as the these women's stories are left out as the the fact that Jesus is a person who learns is left yes. out of the picture. Yeah. Uh, his humanity, the humanity of the entire Christian movement, there's there's so much that I think adds a richness to it that that we actually lose in the process of neglecting those elements. Yeah, for sure. So this conversation kind of leads me into my other question that I had for you. And that is, we've already alluded to it, but like a lot of scholars will say that the stories of Jesus and the gospels are not meant most of them to be taken literally, right? Like maybe some of them are, but certainly not all of them. And I think, I think John Dominic Cross, and I'm going to do this quote, no justice. It's not a direct quote, but it's a, a general idea, but he talks about how there is certainly a real man name Jesus, but that doesn't mean that the stories that were told about him are quote real or historical stories that they actually happened or something like that. But anyway, so with that in mind, like my question then is if the stories of the gospels are not literal, historical, whatever, how can we then rely on those stories to help us construct an accurate picture of what Jesus might've learned from these women that it mentions, because although those women most likely existed, just, just as Jesus did, isn't it possible that the stories about them or the details that we have are maybe not ones that actually happened? So does that like distort at all uh, what we can glean from the text of what Jesus might have learned from these women? Yeah, and that's a great question. Uh, the, I think there is a there's a wider there's there's a variety of things in the Gospels where the question of literalism might not even have come up for authors in certain cases. Like, well, of course, an infancy story with all these miraculous elements. Of course, I didn't actually know that stuff like that happened, but that's the kind of story you have to tell because this is an important person, right? Sure. What else are we going to do? Right. Uh, it's just sort of natural in that context. And for us, often the issues that come up is, you know, so did this really happen? Mm -hmm. Are these the exact words and those kinds of things uh, present themselves in a way that I don't think did in the same way for ancient people. I mean, they were concerned with, you know, sort of the real person, but mm -hmm. 
there there was no no question of you know verbatim recording right of you know me just going back and listening to the podcast again to make sure you get you know what what Glenn said exactly right or that sort of thing right mm-hmm. uh, that said there are two main approaches to biblical literature that tend to inhabit separate worlds and use separate methods, even though there's their points of intersection overlap, mm-hmm. which is the literary, right? Treating this as literature, asking what do the stories say? How do they say it? How do they convey their meaning? And then the historical, right? What, is, what actually happened, if anything, behind these stories that may have given rise to these stories, which to some extent reflect, to some extent reinterpret, to some extent maybe distort or embellish or whatever in relation to that history. Mm-hmm. And I had to decide early on, not just what am I going to do with the fact that we're not told all that we'd like to be told about these women, but that in a lot of instances, what we're told, you know, we cannot prove using the kinds of methods that uh, those who are being as skeptical as possible when it comes to history mm-hmm. would would want to apply. Yeah. And the good news for me, I guess, was that there has been at least something of a shift. Uh, it's, it's by no means embraced uh, universally in my field, but there has been something of a shift away from trying to break things down into you know, their tiniest component parts, right? individual words and sayings, and can we determine whether this little fragment taken on its own out of context is historical? And then we get as many of those little tiny pieces and then we try to arrange them. Mm. And there are scholars like Dale Allison who really made the case that really what we need to look for are the big picture impressions, mm. right? That that's the thing that our memory uh, recalls most effectively. And if the sources agree on that, then they're probably giving us something of what Jesus was like. And if the sources don't agree on that, then looking for lots of little details is probably not going to help us do much better. Yeah. And so these stories reflect the impact that Jesus had, right? mm-hmm. uh, as we see it in some of our early sources, primarily those within the New Testament, but also some from a little bit later. And looking for patterns in that, you know, is is a legitimate way of doing history. But right. I, I had to decide early on that I wasn't going to simply um, set things aside because there's there's historical uncertainty about them, right? Yeah, well, yeah. That would have made for a very different book that some <laughs> academics might have appreciated more, but uh, nobody else would have appreciated. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> wouldn't, wouldn't have sold as many copies for sure. <laughs> but I think, you know, as you're talking and I'm listening to you, you know, talk about just how you, you know, putting together the content that you had, it almost seems like, it feels like to me, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but it's almost like you we're tapping into what the gospel writers had to do when they wrote their gospels, right? Because I mean, you think, I imagine them sitting down with maybe there's the talk about the Q gospel, you know, there's the sayings of, of Jesus. So they, they had these sayings. They obviously had these oral stories that were handed down. They most likely had maybe a couple other writings, but for the most part, they had to pull from the content from these different places to put together the story. And it doesn't mean to your point that like, it wasn't, it might not have been historical in the sense that this is a literal story that I'm making, but I'm pulling this content from here. I'm pulling this saying over here from Q. Let's put it together into the story and let's present it to the to the readers. Yeah, absolutely. It's what the it's what the gospel authors had to do. Yeah. It's what somebody who's who's making a biopic today has to yeah. do. Yeah. And that's uh, what you did. That's what I mean, essentially that's kind of what you did is you pulled from the different texts that we have yeah. and you put the put together the story. Yeah, if, if you are telling the story of history and not just trying to provide a list of, of uninteresting facts, um, occasionally, you know, peppered <laughs> in with them, some interesting facts, but right. still not as interesting as a story would be. <laughs> yeah. Uh, if you're trying to tell a story, then you need to take what snippets of detail you have and weave them together. And that involves filling, that involves, you know, elaborating, elucidating, um, knitting things together, connecting dots, and our ancient authors had to do that, and the historian today has to do that, and and my book does that. Yeah. So talk to us. Let's give people like a little a little teaser into the book. Uh, obviously, the the woman that 
probably had the biggest impact on Jesus's life in terms of what he learned would have been his mom, right? Mary. Um, everybody learns something from their mom. And so maybe tell us a few things uh, from your research, from your writing that Jesus uh, likely learned from his mom and maybe share for us um, how you came to some of those conclusions uh, in your research and in, in, your, in your writing. Yeah, well, I'm, t- I'm tempted to start with, you know, he learned to talk, right? There's <laughs> right. you know. one, end of the chapter, that's it, next. <laughs> uh, and it's one of the reasons why it's, so I, I actually start with Sir Jesus' family, even though some of the other stories are, you know, there's the, the ground that we're on historically is a little bit more solid. You know, mm-hmm. we have like actual stories told in more detail. And so, sure. uh, yeah, I've, I've been making guest appearances in a book this, a discussion group that's talking about the book. And there's a, a New Testament scholar in there who's like, yeah, you should you should skip to later chapters and come back to the mother and grandmother chapters later because it's on more solid ground. Uh, people who are not like historically minded New Testament scholars, I don't think are as worried about that. Mm-hmm. Oh, I didn't, though I did have my uncle ask, you know, so where did you get the letter from Mary? You know, so it's like, okay. Um, was I not cleared up? That's historic. There's historical fiction woven in at the start of each of these chapters. <laughs> but it's interesting there, the, the question of what Jesus learned in terms of formal education, did he learn to read and write? Um, you know, I, I started with talking, right? And the very mm-hmm. basics, but Joseph sort of disappears from the picture at some point. And so we can envisage Mary possibly having to arrange for whatever kind of education Jesus got, however much or little we think that was. There are also some interesting things, particularly in the Gospel of Luke, um, but in the Gospel of Luke, all the more so when correlated with other sources, that make one at least make one wonder, you know, either, you know, did, did Luke know something along these lines? Uh, was it actually maybe a point he wanted us to take away? Or is it just coming through even though it's not one of his aims? Mm. Because he gives us this poetry that Mary uttered early mm. in his Gospel, right? My soul magnifies the Lord, this thing that we sometimes call the Magnificat. Mm-hmm. And it's woven through with these themes that you also find in the, the Hebrew Bible and the Jewish scriptures, uh, themes of social justice, right? bringing down the powerful from their thrones, lifting up the lowly, uh, feeding the poor, sending the rich away empty. And those reversals are precisely the things that come across in the teaching of Jesus all throughout the gospel tradition, but in particular in the gospel of Luke, right? The the Beatitudes in Luke are not the ones that most people know from Matthew's gospel. Those are more familiar. Where Matthew has blessed are the the poor in spirit. Luke's version is, you know, blessed are you who are poor, right? Coupled with woe to you who are rich. (laughs) And so we don't get anything similar attributed to Joseph in Luke's gospel. And Luke attributes to Jesus teaching that is just like the kind of thing that his mother said, right? Obviously it goes into more detail because we get more of it, but it's there, right? Mm-hmm. And so that that makes one wonder, you know, did Luke actually want us to learn from the woman that Jesus learned from? Or was this just something that he kind of was aware of? Of course, he writes a second volume, the book of Acts, that suggests that Mary is still involved in the community. And so maybe he's actually... Yeah, got an impression of her and says, yeah, yeah I, I see where he got it from and that kind of thing. Right? Mm. One thing that's particularly striking uh, that, you know, again, could be because there's there are a lot of authors who are concocting things, but trying to do it in a plausible way, mm-hmm. but could also reflect history. And sometimes those two, again, as I've already said, are inseparable and hard to distinguish. But the letter of James, whether it's, whether it's a, a forgery supposedly written by Jesus' brother, or whether it's an authentic early text, Mm -hmm. has some of those same themes, right? Very, very prominent in it. And so when you put those together, you get the impression that this woman taught her children Mm -hmm. and had an influence on her family. Mm -hmm. And one wonders how much further it went, right? How much of Jesus' own sense of his vocation, Uh, his Mm -hmm. expectations for the kingdom of God, um, his sense of Davidic ancestry, possibly, and things of that sort, uh, that he's living in a decisive moment in history, 
that God is going to do something. How much of that came to him earliest through his mother, right? Yeah. And so there are other things could could possibly think of, but that's one that I think is a particularly strong point and one that's actually surprisingly clear in the source material once we ask the question, what did Jesus learn and who did he learn from? Yeah. I love that you bring that out in the in the book and that you just talked about it now, just that, you know, Mary very well may have had that influence on him for um, social justice and his passion for that, because I've always thought long before hearing about you or your book, I've always thought of that time when Jesus stood up in the temple and read from the scroll of Isaiah and talked about how, you know, the, the, the bat, uh, bind up the wounds of the brokenhearted, relieve the oppressed, all these different things. And I always thought to myself, like, I wonder, I wonder if that's a passage that Jesus heard in his home while he was growing up. Like I, I often wondered, like, I wonder if that's something that was like a family value, you know, for, for Mary, if that was something that she tried to instill in her children. And then he stood up in the temple to make that almost like his own life mission. Because I think about my own life and like the own verses from the Bible that are important to me. And a lot of them were handed to me from my mother because my mother would talk to me about whatever verses that she knew, you know, in particular like Psalm 23 and things like that, that were close to her heart. And those are ones that still stick out for me. And so kind of making Jesus more human, whereas we tend to make him more, more godlike sometimes in church and less human. I've always thought to myself, I wonder if just like Psalm 23 is important to me because of my mom. Like, I wonder if, if that passage was important to Jesus because of, of his mom. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, that's one that you know, is related to you know, things like the Magnificat. If we look at the, the words that are attributed to Mary there, yeah. there's this, there's scriptural echoes, right? Woven through it. And so we get a sense that this is somebody who, who knew the, knew the scripture, right? And writing that chapter gave me a chance to uh, try to tackle and challenge one of the, uh, one of the impressions that people have, which is that uh, because the few opportunities for what we might call formal education mm -hmm. went to men almost yeah. exclusively, mm -hmm. that therefore women were not educated, but men were, right? I mean, most men are also not formally educated. And to the extent that there is something that we, we, we should call learning, even if it's not that same kind of formal education where you go and have lessons and that kind of setting, women had that as well as men right? Most men did not read the scriptures, right? They heard them read aloud in the synagogue. And that was true of men and women. Most heard them, you know, repeated the familiar ones in their families, right? And learned them through hearing. And that was true of men as well as through women. Uh, that said, it's interesting that there are these depictions in art of uh, Mary and her mother, uh, often with a book, Right, suggesting a, a literate family on the female side, which is just fascinating, precisely because it's not it's not something you'd expect to be invented for this time in history or the times in which the artwork was created. Yeah. And so one wonders, you know, was there an awareness of that? Yeah. But however it came, right, things learning didn't happen just through through literacy, mm -hmm. in, particularly in this time period. And the same is true today, but was even more so in this ancient context. Yeah. That's so good. So of all the women in the book that you talked about, uh, which one did you learn the most from? Because obviously you dug into what we know about them. Uh, you, I imagine you pulled in some extra sources as well to see what other people have said, but like, what did you learn from a, what, what particular woman impacted you the most? And what did you learn from her that you didn't really think about going into the book, into the writing? Yeah. And, and the truth is there's something in, I think, every chapter mm -hmm. where I did not see this coming, right? <laughs> uh, in some cases, it was very early in the process where it just struck me that, yeah, the reaction of Jesus, of those around him to this encounter means that this was not something that was sort of par for the course for Jesus, mm -hmm. right? And so this conversation is having an impact on him. But there are a couple that stand out. Um, it's interesting, you know, I, I wanted the dedication to not just be, you know, to my wife, Elena, but uh, 
to my wife, Elena, the woman from whom I've learned the most from your worst student. <laughs> and uh, she, she basically said no. And I was wise enough and have learned enough from her on previous occasions to listen to her. Smart man. <laughs> but for, fortunately, she's okay with me telling the story. <laughs> she doesn't want it there in print. Um, <laughs> but two particularly striking examples. So one is the, the chapter about Joanna. And the reason for that, right, I left it till the, the last, you know, sort of towards the end of the book, uh, because it is somewhat, you know, speculative and pulling threads together in ways that are, are less certain. But initially, I didn't think that chapter was going to be in there because what do we get in the Gospel of Luke, right? Joanna, the wife of Cusa, right, who is Herod's property manager or mm -hmm. something like that. Clearly, a, a woman of status who is is funding and supporting this movement clearly an important person clearly one who deserves a chapter but that's not enough to go on really is it mm. and as free as i was feeling to speculate that seemed like just too little right just no you know saying okay well what do we know about herod what about his property where would they have lived you, know, mm. you could get you could weave a lot there but that's really really you know getting you know, far afield from anything that's genuinely there in the source material. But then I encountered this possibility, which I was initially dismissive of, that Joanna in the Gospel of Luke might be the same person as Junia mentioned in the letter to the Romans. And I was like, well, that's a little speculative. I'm so <laughs> but as I started pulling on the threads, suddenly these things that seemed separate and yet and also were puzzling in their own right suddenly seemed to connect and yeah. to offer explanations to one another hmm. and so yeah not to give too many spoilers there mm -hmm. but you know there's some interesting connections right uh so kuza is uh, a nabataean name right and so that means this woman is married to somebody who's from um, Arabia, right? That side of Herod's family, possibly connections, that part of the world. And Junia is said to be a relative of, of Paul's, right? And so if Paul has a relative who has married a Nabataean, right? And he emphasizes from the tribe of Benjamin, right? They're historically from, you know, that vicinity around Jericho, where you get the Nabataeans and the Edomians and the Jews sort of intersecting. Yeah. Does that have any connection with the fact that, you know, where does Paul go when he's persecuting the church? He goes to Damascus, which is, at that time period is under the rule of, of the king of the Nabataeans, right? King Aretas. Hmm. Uh, why does he go to Arabia? Right? Why is that one of the first things he does after he uh, has his turnaround? Uh, does it have something to do with family connections, right? Are the, you know, the, the family that he's been harassing and, you know, um, opposition to whom he, uh, opposition to uh, whose involvement with this movement has motivated him to uh, be so adamant about it. And so there are all these things and there's much more to it. And there's obviously I'm not presenting a very uh, detailed case with footnotes in a podcast, but <laughs> there's a lot of detail in that and a lot of intriguing connections that start to come up. And so I, I learned so much about uh, the, the, the social world of the time Mm. And this gave me a, a person of clear status, right? Who I think would have had an influence on Jesus. Like what might you have gotten from a connection that, you know, was, you know, just literally, you know, not even one step away, one step removed from the household of, of Herod Antipas, right? Yeah. So that was one of them. The mm. other one I mentioned is uh, the story of the woman accused of committing adultery. Mm. Uh, that one is fascinating because it's in John 8 in some of our manuscripts, but not in our earliest ones. Mm -hmm. And so it seems to be added later. And yet it's so widely known in our early Christian sources, right? You get it mentioned in early post-New Testament writings, perhaps even before it's actually worked into one of the gospels uh, mm -hmm. in the manuscript tradition. And so it may be historical, even if it wasn't an original part of the gospel of John. Mm -hmm. But looking closely at that, story, the, the mode of execution that was specified, uh, the fact that she is brought to the temple, and that's specifically where this is said to unfold, that it's the Pharisees who are bringing the, the matter to Jesus. Mm. Uh, all of those things actually 
allow you to fill in a lot of details about this woman and what she was accused of and what her status was in ways that just blew me away. And here, here's, a, here's a teaser for the book. It led me to at least come up with a, a, what I think is a genuinely new possibility regarding the question of uh, the significance of Jesus writing in the dust on the ground in that story. Mm. Right? So it says that Jesus wrote in the, the dust, wrote on the ground. And people always wondered, what did he write? What was he, you know, what was, I'm not sure I'm right, but I think I've, I've got a new possibility and it connects with the details of her story as they come together when you, when you ask what, what influence this encounter might've had on Jesus and yeah. approach it through that lens. Yeah. So uh, each chapter has something where I found things coming to light that I never would have guessed going yeah. into the book. And so I'd say that I think this is really the most important book I've written. Um, I'm, I'm worried it might be the most important book I ever write. Uh, so I'll just stop now and find the top. <laughs> But it's all downhill from here and everything else is going to be disappointing by comparison. Right. Uh, but I certainly do think it's the most, um, you know, it's it's the one from which I've learned the most and I've found the most rewarding to work. On. And so I hope that readers will have at least some hint of that experience as they, as they read it and discover some of these things along with me. Yeah. And I think it's a, it's one of the most important books that I've read um, in a while. And it's important, it stands out to me because I mean, you're really giving a voice to marginalized characters in the text. And I think that's given the world that we're in and people who are marginalized and oppressed finding their voices and people getting platforms, you know, to put those voices up. Like, I feel like that's what you did in your book is you gave these women who are marginalized in that culture, a platform with which to use the voice that they had. And I think that's, that's so important. Thanks. That's what I was hoping for. So that's, yeah. that's great. You did it. You did it. <laughs> well, hey, James, we're just about um, out of time, uh, but this has been fantastic. Uh, thank you so much for taking the time to join me. And um, again, for this book, it's fantastic. Thank you for having me on the show. It's been, it's been wonderful to have this conversation with you. Uh, it's, it really does, you know, I don't know if other authors you've spoken to have said this, but it really does encourage us and warm our hearts when, when we talk to somebody who's, who's, benefiting from and finding what we write interesting. Um, otherwise we sit sit working on our stuff and become increasingly <laughs> discouraged and wonder, right. is anybody reading this? Is anybody people... reading this anywhere? <laughs> and so it's, it's been so encouraging to hear some of the actions and, and yours, you know, it's just, yeah, very meaningful to me. So thank you very much. Oh, you're very welcome. And real quick, where can people go to find you um, online? You hang out any uh, particular social media places, anything like that? Yeah, uh, I've, I've got my blog and my uh, Twitter uh, are all, sort of connected with all one word religion profs, right? So if you do, <laughs> just look up religion prof, uh, Google might say, did you mean religion space prof? Yeah, tell it no and you <laughs> no, will No, it's not what I meant, Google. Uh, Shut up. <laughs> but I, I blog and um, I'm on Twitter and uh, a few other places as well and, and on Facebook. Awesome. Well, I'll put the links to those things in the show notes and uh, we'll do this again sometime soon. Already looking forward to it. Thanks so much. Uh, me too. Just standing, not demanding a link, a like, a share, a blink, a nod. For I don't get it, so I'll never get it. The style, what's hip, what gets those kids to applaud. But then you. You came along Bringing words to my melodies Of a brand new song Just waiting for me To join in And I don't mind Thinking about it I feel fine Just thinking about it Someday I make it out of Wasted half of my life coming down from false peaks. 
You see, kids, I thought I was high on life. Turns out I was just high, but then you, well, you came along, bringing words to my melodies of a brand new song just waiting for me to join.